It helps when the pastor turns his microphone on. It's always a good idea. I turned it off when I was asking Brian to bring me my uh, water, and I didn't want everybody to hear the request, so I've got to turn it back on. Today's scripture passage is very special to me. It is the same, exact same text that I read from this very spot, December the 16th of 1992, when I came and preached what we like to call a call sermon or a trial sermon. So that night at the end of my sermon, there would be a vote on whether to call me as the pastor of Corinth Reformed Church. And the outcome of the vote was far from certain. There had been an active and vocal opposition to my candidacy, some of it based on misinformation, but a lot of it based on honest differences about where the future of Corinth needed to go. So the church profile had said that that most of the congregation uh, want to call a conservative pastor, but I would emphasize the word most. And I can illustrate the tension that night, for those of you that don't know, by telling you that at the end of the evening, I was voted in as pastor, but it was 71%, which means that most pastors wouldn't go to a place knowing 30% of the people don't even want me here. But that was 26 years ago. And I was later told that my, my sermon introduction made the search committee very nervous. These are the people who have recommended me to the congregation. So I get up here, they have no idea what I'm going to say, and my sermon introduction sounds something like this. I'm really puzzled why a church would call itself Corinth, because the name Corinth does not have a good connotation for me. The first century city of Corinth was known for its its temple of Aphrodite up on the highest peak overlooking the city with a thousand female prostitutes to service the traveling businessmen. To Corinthianize in the first century was to practice immorality, and a Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute. Awkward (laughs) moment. And then I continued and said, the church at Corinth was known for its division. So the Corinthian believers squabbled over everything. They squabbled over important things. They also elbowed one another to get to the front of the love feast meal. Why would anybody choose the name Corinth for a church name? And then I said this. We can make a new reputation for the name Corinth. And by God's grace, a quarter of a century later, in this community, the name Corinth has a very different reputation. But if you think it was because of Bob the Builder you need to hear the rest of the sermon. So I'm going to attach to uh, my sermon manuscript for today the original manuscript from 1992 because I think it has some merit. And I almost thought about repeating that sermon except for the fact that, A, this is a very different occasion, and B, I got a little bit of fresh insight into this text since that time, particularly in my study this week. So here's my insight in... uh, in in brief form, and I'll come back to it. Paul uses two analogies for the church in this passage. One is a field, and the other is a building. If you didn't have both of those analogies, your understanding of what the church is would be almost totally incorrect or at least incomplete. So one could argue that both analogies were necessary because of Paul's audience, that some of them would have been farmers 
who looked out their windows at open fields, but others of them in the city of Corinth would have been urban dwellers who drew the shades or curtains or whatever they had in those days and saw a skyline of beautiful buildings. So maybe Paul wanted to address both groups, but I think there was a different reason that Paul wanted to use both analogies. So both analogies address the same issue, and if you're looking at your Bible, that's in verses 1 through 4 of our text. Among all of the things, and there were many, that Paul wanted to address to the church at Corinth, this first issue was primary. He confronted it in the most profound and consistent way throughout the book, and it is the problem of conflict in the church, cliques and rivalry, and jealousy, and condescension. And in an odd sort of way, I'm sort of glad the first century Corinthian church had those problems, because if they didn't, we wouldn't have 1 Corinthians, which would include we wouldn't have that great love chapter, chapter 13. Paul wouldn't have been inspired to write it if the Corinthians hadn't inspired it in kind of a negative way. So I'm sort of glad they had these problems. So he notes in verse 4 of our text that some Corinthians say, I follow Paul, while others say, I follow Apollos. Paul, you probably know better than Apollos. So let me tell you about him. He was a Jew from Alexandria down in Egypt, and he was well-educated in Scripture as a Jew, but he had just begun to learn some of the stories about Jesus, and he didn't know the whole story very well. So when he first believed in Christ in Ephesus, Apollos had heard part of the story, and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside to instruct him further. He was responsive. And after Paul established the church at Corinth, Apollos then came behind him, perhaps even because Paul had that kind of trust, he was ready to leave Corinth and put the the young church, he'd only been there 18 months, in the hands of such a capable leader. What Paul wasn't fine with is that as a result of that, some Corinthians were saying, I'm really a Paul guy, and others would say, I'm an Apollos guy, and even others would say, well, Peter's my man. So this party spirit... uh, uh, prompts Paul to confront these Corinthians with a number of rather strong words. He calls them worldly. He calls them infants. He calls them uh, not spiritual. They are uh, immature. They can't eat solid food. They're only good for milk. So they're just babies or mere humans. And Paul seems particularly to addressing those who prefer him over Apollos when he says, I gave you milk, not solid food. I was the founder. I gave you the the first things. But then Apollos came along. You should honor him. He's giving you the solid food. But then he says, you're not even ready for solid food yet. You're going to have to have a little bit more milk. So Christians like to debate what Paul means by milk or solid food or immature or mature or worldly or spiritual. And the most common understanding is that the milk idea is the first things of the gospel. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. You need to believe in Jesus. And that meat or solid food is about complex theology. So when you grow up, you you have more complex ideas. You can deal with the hard passages of Scripture. And I'm going to say I really disagree with that interpretation. I understand it, but I disagree with it because what what Paul's going to do here is tell us exactly what he means by infants and mature. And the emphasis is on what you know. You never outgrow the need to grasp the basics of the gospel. The, the, the contrast is between what you know 
and whether you do anything about what you know. Specifically, does what you know then lead you to love those who might think and act differently than you do? So if you think you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you hold in your heart resentment and unforgiveness, and you, and you are you're having uh, human loyalties, then Paul says you're just acting like a little baby. And if you think you've grown so spiritually so much that you don't have to love people who are less holy than you are, then get back in the crib and go back to the first principles again. You need some more milk. So grow up, he says to the Corinthians, and then he adds, there are two different ways that I can illustrate for you what it means to grow. And the first is a field in verses 5 to 9. So here's a church that has a tendency to overinflate human personalities, and Paul finds multiple ways in his field analogy to downplay both himself and Apostle, and, and excuse me, and Apollos, and himself more so than Apollos. First, he doesn't ask, who is Apollos? And who is Paul? Instead, he asks, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? In other words, in his analogy, the people involved in growing are just things. They are like plows and sickles. Note that he mentions Apollos first. He calls both of them servants who are assigned by a master. Chronologically, Paul was first, and so he was the one who planted, but Apollos watered, and neither one of them, verse 7, Paul says, is anything. What they do, they do with the same purpose, verse 8. They'll get the same reward, verse 8. They are co-workers in God's service, verse 9. So the point in all this is how absurd it is to attach importance to a human being from whom you learned the gospel or from whom you learned the next steps in your Christian life. They're only planters or waterers, and only God can make things grow. Later in this letter, Paul will talk about the different roles that we have in the church, spiritual gifts. He calls them the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But no matter how gifted you are and what you do, think back to the farming analogy. What very gifted or experienced farmer can turn a seed into a tomato or an acorn into a tree? The humans involved might as well be tools. If you're a farmer, would you say, you know what, I only like plows, so I'm only going to use a plow. Or I only like sickles. Well, when you're a kid, you can do that. When you're a farmer, you need to understand there are moments in which you need both, and both are equally valuable to the task. And this is Paul's farming analogy. And then he gets to the idea of a building in verse 10. He abruptly shifts from field to building and says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. So now he's not the planter. He is the builder, and he's the foundation builder. And he doesn't mean, look at me. I'm so wise, I laid a foundation. What he means is that a wise builder always knows to start with a foundation, and that's what I did. It's what Paul did everywhere he went. He would often go to a place and start a church, and then, um, shockingly to me, 18 months or six months or even two years later, he would move on and do it somewhere else. That was his gift. But then he adds, each one should build with care, verse 11, the reason I chose this text then, 26 years ago and now. No one can lay any foundation, by that he means any durable foundation, than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If I had more time, we'd go back, go on and look at some of the building materials he talks about after the foundation, the gold or silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. In other words, there's a whole array of building materials that are important once you get past the foundation. But his point here is that none of that matters unless you start with a strong foundation. So why does Paul use both of these analogies? Because both field and building respond to the root problem of the Corinthian church. Their problem was not the pagan society around them. Would you remember that when you think the problem with the church today is the corrupt culture around us? The Corinthian culture was so much worse. That wasn't their problem. Their fundamental problem was not the lure of economic success in their thriving crossroads city. Would you remember that when you think the problem with the church in America is we're too wealthy? That wasn't their problem. The problem even wasn't that they, uh, that they had doctrines and morals. Doctrines and morals matter, but that wasn't their root problem. The presenting issue was division. The root problem was pride. It was ego. It was sin. It was I'm better than you are because I've got my theology and my ethics more advanced than you do. So whose pride was he addressing? Anyone whose pride made them believe that their loyalties or their doctrines or their maturity made them better than their brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, why are both analogies important? Because if you stick to the field analogy, you have a wonderful point about mystery and humility. I can't do this. The church is not something I or any individual can create. I, and there are no guarantees. Any farmer or gardener knows that even though I have a great beginning to this, uh, to this garden, a severe rainstorm or a drought can wipe it all away. And even if I'm the kind of farmer or gardener who has uh, his or her own source of water and fertilizer and I do all my part, come on, can you really turn a seed into corn? Can you do that? No, there's a humility about this, and we in the church need to understand that whatever happens in the church, anything good that happens, it didn't happen because of us. But on the other hand, fields are fragile, and they're temporary, and they're vulnerable, and that's not the case with a building. A building is strong and stable. So not, why didn't Paul just skip right to building? Because if you have a building, you can take credit for it. I'm not saying that you created the stones or whatever, but like in a different way than a gardener, a builder can say, I came up with this design, I followed the right process, I got the right architect, I got the right engineer, I put everything together here, I did this building. Like I could see how it happened with my bare hands and the hands of those who worked with me. So that's why you need the building analogy to have a strong, stable, secure idea of what the church is, but you also need the gardening analogy to keep you humble and remember that ultimately this is a God thing and you didn't do it. So I went back and reread that 1992 sermon and I realized I was fairly bold for an outsider, 37 years old, kind of cheeky even. I quoted from Scott Peck's People of the Lie in my sermon and told them self-deception is evil and maybe there's some evil in this congregation because you think you've got it right and nobody else does. Nothing like trying to get a new job and telling your potential employer some of y'all are evil out there. Maybe the vote would have been 80%, I don't know, but 
I was comfortable that night because, honestly, on one level, Linda and I really didn't care how the vote went. Our daughters are here with us uh, today, and at the time, our children were sixth grade, third grade, and kindergarten, and we were in a cozy place that we loved being and people who loved us, and there wasn't a lot of conflict in that church, and we were biting off a really big... uh, I don't know, I didn't write that sentence in my manuscript. All right? Biting off a really big whatever you bite off. So, you know, like we didn't, we didn't care in the sense that if, we, if, we, uh, if the vote didn't go the way and they didn't want me to come as pastor, we could go right back and keep living the life that we loved and enjoyed. It was only because of a deep sense that God was bringing us here for a purpose that we maybe even didn't fully understand, that we even allowed our name to be put in front of the congregation. And so a quarter century ago, I not only told them about how the name Corinth had become, uh, didn't have good associations for me, I said to them, maybe the name Corinth has become prophetic for you and your division. Whereas the first century Corinthian church said, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, I told the folks that night, thinking about the three prior pastors before me, you have divided yourselves into cliques of Kilburnites and Spiriites and Altausians. I quoted a member of the church who had said to me during the interview process, it was a private interview a couple days later, and she had looked at me, older lady, and she said, you know what's wrong with this church Dr. Althaus died. And I added that night, you're right. She's right. Dr. Althaus died. His body was not intended to be immortal. And Reverend Sperry resigned, as did Reverend Kilburn. Their ministries were temporal, and mine will be too if I come as your pastor. At the time, I had no idea that I would serve here for 25 years. I like to tell the story that the search committee wasn't particularly sure I'd last either because the contract they offered me, although it offered a housing bonus for me to buy a house, I had to pay it back prorated if I didn't last two years. So, like, they were not sure this is going to work out with this Thompson guy. So, the perspective of time reminds me that Corinth today is just as vulnerable as it was in 1968 before Dr. Althaus resigned because of poor health and then died just about a year or so later. If you were here in those years, you probably remember that it felt like the church was going from four decades of strength to four dec- to uh, additional decades of chaos as they got used to a new pastor and a new way of thinking and doing things. And that story, I have since learned, pales in comparison to the story of the only other pastor who has served Corinth longer than I have, and that would be Dr. Joseph Murphy, who was pastor from, 19, from 1890 to 1917. He, he was pastor here 27 years, so I've got to make it one more year to get number two on the list, right? So, um, but, you know, there's no guarantee of that because what I didn't know about Dr. Murphy until actually researching for this year's anniversary is that Dr. Murphy, I didn't know this part, he had helped build the downtown church. He was the pastor at that time, which was considered Hickory's great cathedral at the time. And then uh, he was pastor, that, that was completed in 1911. So World War I breaks out in 1914. 
And before the war ended in 1918, Dr. Murphy had a stroke and died in 1917. So you can imagine a congregation that thought, for 27 years we've had the same pastor. We thought we were stable and strong. And now we've got to face a future without, in the middle of a war, in the middle of really difficult times without the person we have come to love and trust. A sovereign God gives and takes away leaders. I actually had a text this morning that was from someone who really intended to encourage me, and she did encourage me about today. Basically, you know, you knew you've put a lot of time into this, but her text said, you're almost done. You know what? Every one of us ought to live with that reality. And in case you're wondering, is Bob getting ready to announce his resignation? No. I tell people I'm here till I resign or am fired or die, and I'm not aware that any of them is imminent. But you never know, and the congregation didn't know in 1917. And the thing that probably unsettles me more, more than anything else, the sense of vulnerability for the congregation is that somehow the perception of people is that the church is strong because Bob's been their pastor, or God brought Paul or Amy or Lori or any one of a number of our amazing staff that God brought to us. And I, I just need to say to you, the stability of a church is never about the leaders. That's what Paul is telling us here. And I'm sure there were people in the late 19-teens and there were people in the 1970s who said Corinth will never be strong again. Would you look around you today at the congregation that is here and realize there's another one just as large over in Boston Memorial Hall? We had an 8.30 service as well. And God has done something in here, and I've only been a small piece of it, a small part of it. So how do you tell when your loyalty is to a human being rather than to Jesus Christ? You may not know for sure until the leader is gone, until the leader is taken away from you by whatever means God chooses to do that. And then you know. Was I really following Bob or Paul or someone else, or was I following Jesus Christ? Is that where my heart is? Is that where my commitment is? Is that where my loyalty is? So what do I I want you to remember? I'm I'm very aware that people are going to be rummaging through this era of Corinth's life in the same way I've rummaged through the era's past in preparation for this weekend. And I want to tell you, I hope they don't look back and say he was a good organizer, or he was a good preacher, or he preached a good funeral, or whatever. I hope they rummage through all the papers and things of this era and say, everywhere I turn, he talked about Jesus. Because a church is always vulnerable. It's always vulnerable because it's a garden, and we're not in charge of it. There's a sovereign God who is in charge, but God is not worried about Corinth. And he's not worried about the church universal because it belongs to him. And therefore, the only foundation on which we can build now or in the future is on Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And I invite you now to join me in a renewal of our covenant to him. Would you turn with me, please, in the back of your program, I believe it's page 15, to a service of covenant renewal. When we preached on Joshua a few months ago, I said we need to do this on our anniversary because there are wonderful biblical precedents, including in the book of Joshua. And 
And then there are also elements of our own history that I wanted to weave into this. So I'm going to invite you, please, to stand. And I realize that there may be people here for whom the Christian faith is not your faith or you're not ready for this commitment. It's okay. Not everybody has to say it. But if this is your heart, I want to join I want to ask you to join with me in this service of covenant renewal as our response to the preached word of God today. Let us pray. God, creator and father, we come before you a rebellious people. We have denied your intentions for us. We have preferred our way to Christ's way. We have disobeyed your commandments and we have worshiped ourselves and the things we have made. Forgive us, restore in us the knowledge of who we are, and make us alive to serve you in faith, obedience, and joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.